Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, December 1st, and we're talking hot holiday tech gifts. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com's jack-of-all-trades, Dan Klein. Dan, what's going on? Uh, hey, Dylan, how are you? Doing all right. Um, you know, now that it's officially December first, I think we can start talking holiday stuff. I know, I know that some, some folks over on the CG show already got into the spirit. It's very bizarre having it be December when, as you know, I live in West Palm Beach, so it's 82 degrees. Yet somehow it's almost Christmas. Well, I'll say even here in Washington D.C., it has been uh, pretty mild. So I'm not really feeling the December chill yet. It's a little tough to get into the spirit of the season. We're going to try today, though, on the show, talking about some gift ideas. Um, Before we get too far into some of this consumer tech stuff, though, Dan, um, you have a teenage son. What is the hot item for him this year? (laughs) Well, mostly he's into telling me I'm wrong. But (laughs) when it comes to, he's 13, so that's kind of the age. You can't really package that. Yeah, he he wants uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2. He played, I would say Battlefront was a good three months of just endless gameplay. So he's excited about that. And he's getting uh, an Amazon Echo Dot, mostly because I'm tired of him talking to mine. So <laughs> it's going to be a tech-heavy Christmas in my house. How about you? Well, I take it that your son doesn't listen to the show, given that you just said what you were going to be giving him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not sure my son knows what I do for a living. He did once <laughs> Tell his classmates I worked for the monthly fool. So. <laughs> well, in, you know, in some sense, that's right with our stock newsletter service. <laughs> um, I have I have some snowboarding stuff uh, on my wish list. I got into it last season thanks to a friend, kind of forcing me to get on the mountain, and really liked it. So I'm looking forward to hopefully getting a couple accessories for that. Uh, man behind the glass, Austin Morgan. What is on your holiday wish list? So first of all, Dan Klein, uh, Battlefield Two. I'm hearing it's a no go. Don't buy. Really? Yeah. So it sounds like you have to pay to be good at the game. Yeah, that, that, that's one of my big complaints about a lot of these games. Is uh, one of the things I saw in Battlefront Two is you can't be Darth Vader if you don't spend extra money. I mean, Darth Vader is a pretty core character in Star Wars. It sounds like you have to put in almost two hundred hours to unlock Darth Vader or the heroes. Maybe not Darth Vader, uh, but the heroes. Well, for it's crazy for thirteen. For a 13-year-old with Christmas break, that uh, that could happen. That's true. That's very true. My Christmas wish list is a slightly different than it usually is. Usually, I'm getting like a new GoPro with or a stabilizer for a GoPro. But this year, I just went to the uh, government expo, and now my wish list is full of video gear that I can't afford. <laughs> so Austin wants slightly different things than most people. Some set of lights, maybe a new tripod. So I can work that freelance. I'm just glad you went last. You totally could have shamed us with saying how you were donating your holiday to a charity or something. (laughs) Something that makes us look terrible. So uh, I'm going to bring this tangent around (laughs) to to what we're talking about today. And actually, that Battlefront uh, conversation was kind of a good cue up because some of the things we're going to be talking about are relevant to the gaming space. Um, One of the really big things on a lot of people's lists, and just kind of seeing the circulars being sent around by, uh, you know, Best Buy, Target, things like that, uh, is the Nintendo Switch. Dan, you want to talk a little bit about this product and and why so many people are interested in it? 
So I bought a Nintendo Switch right when it came out. Uh, it involved a lot of waiting in line, a lot of jumping onto websites. But basically, it's a call it a casual gaming console. It sort of builds upon the original Nintendo Wii, and it's very interactive. Some of the games involve movement. Uh, I have a game called Arms, where you actually sort of move your arms to to kind of box is is the game, and it's more family friendly. It's it's a little bit cheaper for a new console uh, at, at $299, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But it's really something that's meant to be for more casual game players. You know, my wife might play Mario Kart. She's not going to play Battlefront 2. And it's a little bit more of a hybrid device, right? It, it kind of blends the categories between console and like handheld gaming. That's the really cool part. So it's actually a tablet that you, if you want to play on your TV, you can sit it in a, in a little cradle and it comes up in your TV. And if mid-game you want to switch and move with it, you just grab it, slide the little controller things into the side, and it becomes a really cool tablet gaming experience. Pretty much seamless. So you mentioned that price of $299. And one of the things that we want to do with today's show is basically look at, okay, this is a popular device. Um, what does it actually mean for the company that sells it and their financials? And so earlier this year, this tech firm, Fomalhaut Techno Solutions, I hope I'm saying that right, um, did a teardown of the Nintendo Switch, and they ballparked that the build cost roughly $257. So that leaves them some margin to grab, but not a ton. Well, except most of them are being sold through retailers, and while there's very little retail markup, they they have to be making something to cover their their handling. So my guess is Nintendo sells the device at a loss. But what's very important on the Switch, and, and this will come up again and again with other consoles, is that when when you get the Switch, you really only have what you need for limited gameplay. So you pretty much need to buy a second controller. You need to buy the little thing that the two controllers that come with it are sort of mini controllers, and they slide into something to make a full controller. So really, you're looking at about another $100 worth of accessories. I bought a carrying case. I bought some additional memory. Um, so those items do have margin. And I would say that the vast majority of people, even before they buy a game, and it does not come with a game, do have to buy some additional accessories that are probably at somewhere between 30 and 50% margin given retail traditions. And looking at what that means specifically for Nintendo, you go back, back over the past six months, the Switch segment produced 65% of the company's revenue and led Nintendo to produce 165% year-over-year growth for the first six months of 2017. That's incredible. Yeah, and what's what's more important about it is, yeah, it's great to sell all these consoles, but if they were selling them and people were just setting them aside, which I think is going to be the case with you know some other sort of one-off technology, but they're really building a user base, and this is going to be a viable platform for 10, maybe even longer, maybe even 10, 15 years, because it's, you know, it's very adaptable, you can have new software, and because it's not meant to be cutting edge in terms of graphic capability, it's not that important as it feels a bit dated. I mean, you can still buy Wii games at, at GameStop. It's really just sort of ending its life cycle. So this kind of revitalized Nintendo's business in terms of a platform to sell software off of. And granted, you know, I, I cited that very gaudy growth rate. They were coming off of a period where they had really disappointing sales of previous devices. So in some ways, they were going up against some pretty easy comps. 
But um, something that was pretty encouraging for me in looking at Nintendo's results is they they also post units uh, as, as one of their main measurements, and so they you know they give you the idea of of how many units of the Switch they're selling. But they also talk about the number of software titles that they're selling, basically per device, and it works out to about five games for every Switch they've sold. So, so that's a testament to how much people enjoy using the device and are buying uh, things to to use on it. And they've made it really easy. So, I mean, obviously, there's an online marketplace for for every game console, but. In addition to being able to buy the sort of top tier $60 Switch titles, there's also sort of a library of older Nintendo titles. So if you want to buy like Street Fighter from, and I'm going to guess the year 1994, maybe it's $6.99 and you can get two or three days of play out of that. So while they haven't turned on all the sort of social features that could eventually be enabled in the game, they've kind of made it so you can make your major purchases when you're excited about, you know, my son really wanted Splatoon. You know, that came out, it was worth the $60, but if it's a rainy day and we're just looking for something to play, there's there's much lower price games that you could download at home relatively easily. And one more point on their financials where I think that's kind of borne out. Uh, you look over at what they were doing in the first half of 2016. They posted operating losses of around $50 million, and you know there's some adjustments there because they report in a different currency. Um, you fast forward to the first six months of 2017, they've posted operating income of $350 million. Um, a lot of that is on the back of these software sales because they're higher margin. It's been an absolute game changer for them because Nintendo was at the point that while they had some of the handheld market, they were teasing, you know, if this didn't work, they would have to just license their their content, their intellectual property to other platforms. And there's certainly a market for Super Mario and Zelda and all their other top tier content. But the second you start doing that, you become, you know, one step removed from the sale. So you're you're there's margin to be paid out elsewhere. So this really insulates their business and sort of protects their IP for a long time to come. All of this is to say, if you see Nintendo Switches flying off the shelves, and you see a lot of reports about really strong Nintendo Switch sales, that's going to bode very well for Nintendo stock, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, th this is this is really strong news for Nintendo stock, and and really for the company, because you look at everything they're trying to do, licensing to Universal for for uh, theme park rides. It's all built off this infrastructure of games. And this gives new life. I mean, you know, right now they're riding Super Mario Odyssey in, you know, the I don't know what number Mario title it is, but you know, the X entry in that game. And that's just things they can build off of without having to rely on Apple or Microsoft or whoever else it might be to distribute it for them. Speaking of Microsoft, Dan, why don't we talk about the Xbox One S and X product lines? Absolutely. So I have an Xbox One, the original one, and I have to say, with a 13-year-old who plays a ton of games, with me being a casual game player, I have seen no limitations with this, aside from the fact that sometimes, due to the storage capacity, I have to go back and delete things I haven't used in six months. But when you look at the, the two new players, they're going after really different tiers. The X, and it's I'm going to say it, X like this, because their X and S sound a lot alike, <laughs> is $499, and it's it's got 4K, it has all the top-tier processors, it has, it has, I believe, a terabyte of storage. It's going after top, high-end gamers, people whom the performance matters for. The S is $189, and I think it's possible at holiday time you might even be able to get a game bundled with that, and that's going after the rest of the market. So for for 
Microsoft, it's a very smart strategy where they they have a niche high-end product that can really appeal to a certain segment, and then they're lowering the price well below the Nintendo Switch, to give you an example, of a sort of very mainstream player that's good enough for nearly everybody else. You mentioned before that the nature of console gaming, uh, it's very hard to make money on the consoles themselves. It's kind of this razor and blade strategy, and we got some confirmation on that. Uh, actually, the Xbox team lead, uh, Phil Spencer, did an interview with Business Insider earlier this year, and they asked him, you know, at a $500 price point, is Microsoft making any money on the Xbox One X? And he flat out said no. You know, like the, it, just because of all of the things that need to go into a device like that to power it and really give it that incredible graphics processing power, uh, he went on to say the console business is not a money is not the money making part of the business. The money making part is in selling games. Yeah, it's about controlling the living room. So. Of, of course, there's the the software. You know, with, there's a lot of margin in a sixty dollar game. There is a lot of margin in Xbox Live subscriptions, which are pretty much required if you want to do the social end of most of these games, which make them a lot more fun, but also add hours and hours of gameplay. Uh, we keep talking about Star Wars Battlefront, but if you have an Xbox Live subscription, you can talk to other people, you can play multiplayer campaigns. There's just way more than the single player missions when it comes to it. And then there's also the incremental revenue, and they don't break out sort of where any of this comes from, but if you subscribe to Netflix through your Xbox One, Microsoft gets a cut of that. And that goes for the thousands of apps and television shows and renting a movie. So it's really about having a central place in your living room where they can have a store. And whether that's for software or subscriptions or movies, that's where the revenue comes from. Taking a step back and kind of looking at how this all fits into Microsoft's business itself, over the past 12 months, uh, they have this um, gaming revenue segment within their personal computing segment. And the gaming revenue has produced $9 billion uh, overall. And in that time, Microsoft has booked over $92 billion in revenue. <laughs> so, so that is to say, uh, the gaming revenue segment is, is nice, but it is not what is driving results for Microsoft. Except I, th I think there is an important public relations factor there that my 13-year-old son knows who Microsoft is because of that. And when he comes old enough that he might be making a decision on cloud hosting or a word processor or even a laptop, uh, it's giving him some exposure to Microsoft. And that has to be a good thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that they have this incredibly loyal, diehard base of gamers that love the Xbox console and have been using it, you know, in some cases for over a decade at this point. So you want to keep those people happy. Uh, it is just to say that if you see really great Xbox sales over the holidays as well, um, it is not going to have the same effect on the Microsoft company the way that it does, you know, with Nintendo and the Switch. No, it's almost a branding play for them. <laughs> it's, I mean, you could look and say it's 10% of revenue, but obviously a lot of that is console sales, which is not profitable. So, you know, for Microsoft, th this is really about all the ancillary benefits of driving their brand as much as it is, you know, the incremental revenue. And just to kind of understand some of the dynamics, I guess, within that, it's worth mentioning that uh, last quarter, the growth within the segment was 1% year over year and 21% growth uh, in the software and services offset declines in hardware. So, uh, that segment is moving more and more towards hardware, uh, towards software sales, um, but the overall gaming segment itself is not really growing all that much for Microsoft. Yeah, it's, it's a 10-year cycle, basically, for a new console. So, obviously, in the first few years of that cycle, it's simply people buying the console and transitioning from the previous one. 
Um, so now that the installed user base for Microsoft is more solid, the people who, when it first came out, had to spend $400 for the base model. I believe it was actually more because you had to buy the, uh, the Connect with it when it first came out. Uh, now those people are spending more of their budget, more of their holiday gifts as we come into Q4. It's going to go into software and, and other things like streaming subscriptions. Yeah. So we have one more consumer device that we're going to hit. We're going to step away from the gaming segment for that discussion. But before we get over to that, support for industry focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool, equal housing lender, license in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. So, Dan, we can step away from the gaming space <laughs> and talk about another very hot product, another one that is on a lot of people's wish lists this holiday season, the Fitbit Ionic. Absolutely. So, this is a company that's almost the opposite of the the previous two we talked about. Fitbit is a device company. Maybe eventually there'll be a, a software and services company. There's an angle to that, but their revenue comes largely from selling everything from sort of the low-end uh, fitness devices, which track your steps, track your heartbeat, but they don't do much beyond that. And in the recent quarter, the company has segged into more of the high-end smartwatch market. Still a fitness-based product, not as broad as as the Apple Watch, uh, and not trying to be, trying to be very strictly about fitness and, and healthy lifestyle. But this is absolutely a device company. Yeah, and this new product, the Ionic, is their second foray into the smartwatch-ish market. Um, the first one being the Blaze. This new device retails for three hundred bucks. Uh, it has a battery life that should last several days, which I think is kind of a major point of differentiation when you look at some of the other smartwatch competitors out there, namely the Apple Watch. So the Apple Watch battery is a pretty major negative. It's it's actually the reason I'm not wearing my Apple Watch right now because you do have to charge it every day, and that's drawn me a little bit towards maybe putting a Fitbit, maybe not even the smartwatch, maybe the mid-level device uh, which does some watch functionality, or at least it tells you the time. It has GPS and it gives you all the sort of fitness-based functions because I do track my steps every day. I try to get to 10,000 steps, as you can tell by the phenomenal condition I clearly am in. <laughs> um, but <laughs> joking a little bit there, uh, I do see some pretty strong upside on the device side. And then maybe once they have, and I think they sold about 3.6 million devices last quarter, once they have that sort of ingrained people using it, their their core community, maybe then they can find some other ways to make uh, service and software revenue. You mentioned that mid-range of their product offering, and that's really where they've seen most of the success. Uh, their best-selling device is the Charge 2, and that's really more of a traditional wearable. Um, it's a kind of fitness tracker, tracks your steps, um, and it kind of operates as a traditional watch as well. Um, that remains the company's best-selling device. Like I mentioned, this is their second chance into the smartwatch market. And, and you look at the dynamics and you look at the business and the way it's currently set up, um, I think that they really need for this to work um, to kind of build out and get beyond this cycle of needing to continue to put out really great hardware products. 
I worry about the price. I mean, they're selling the smartwatch at, at $299, which is lower than the high end of the new Apple Watch 3, but not lower the, with sort of Apple's trailing strategy of keeping older models available to try to get that lower end market. Um, I would have been happier to see sort of all of these prices come down a little bit. So I think the key draw on the, the Fitbit Blaze, uh, the, uh, the Fitbit Charge, is that they're a little bit cheaper. Um, and then when you go into to the new watch, the Ionic, uh, it's not that different. And do I really want something that is kind of good, but the Apple Watch does all these, you know, I can play Pokemon Go and do all sorts of other things on my Apple Watch that I can't do on the Fitbit product? Yeah. And the reason that they are pushing into this smartwatch market, there's a couple, I guess, is the first one, it seems like there's much more money to be made in that segment margin-wise. You know, you, you look down at the low end of the fitness trackers. And when you have companies like Xiaomi selling, I don't know, what was it, like $15 or $20, basically rubber band uh, fitness trackers, there's not really much pricing power there. Uh, there's not, not a whole there, lot you there, can do to move the market. There's also no secondary revenue. If you're selling a full-on smartwatch, even though they're looking at keeping their their apps very specific to fitness. Well, one of the things they talked about in their earnings call was their efforts at uh, glucose tracking. So they can go into very specific segments of health, and maybe you'll pay you know $199 a month to track certain things. Maybe if you have a health condition, you'll pay even more than that to get really precise data that can help you with you know what medicine you take, how your you know your doctor's looking at your information. That with a fitness tracker, you have to then connect it to a computer and you're divorcing it from the company. So the ability for there to be a marketplace for Fitbit on a watch where either they create apps or third parties create apps and they take a little piece of it, uh, that's sort of their revenue future and kind of why they need a watch to take off. Yeah, that gets them away from being almost entirely dependent on hardware sales. And it also, I think, makes their devices a lot more compelling to the people that are using them, right? If you have this very robust (laughs) app library, uh, there's a better chance that the products are going to be sticky and that it's going to be a part of someone's everyday life. Absolutely, because you know we, we've talked about it with phones before. Yeah, I know you personally just made a decision to move providers and stick with your old phone for a while longer. The same could be true of fitness devices. It's very hard to make a giant leap forward. I mean, I have an Apple Watch, and I can't say it's that much better than my Fitbit from two years ago in terms of its ability to track my fitness. So I'm probably not going to buy a new Fitbit or a new Apple Watch every 18 months or even every three years. So if you don't develop these secondary revenue sources, then A, you're not going to make money, and yeah, B, this is going to become a device like so many others in my house that I wear for three months and then I put it away and I never think about it again. So that's really what Fitbit is fighting and kind of why they need a watch and a marketplace is to give you sort of exciting reasons, new stuff it can do to keep the product relevant. Yeah, and I guess the the final word with Fitbit here is uh, the Ionic is not where the company is making most of its money right now. That is with that Charge 2 line, like I mentioned. But long term, this is the segment that you want to see them be successful with because it will really bode well for a lot of their software and platform ambitions down the road. The, the Ionic also came out late in the quarter, so Q4 is really the test for it. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. I kind of forgot about that timing there. Um, Dan, this was a fun show to do. I think we kind of subtly made this point, but I really want to emphasize it. The exercise that we just went through with these companies, I think, is a pretty important one for investors to go through. Because you know you can hear about how a product is selling very well, 
or how a company has exposure to this really big macro trend, and then immediately get kind of carried away creating this growth story for them. But you always need to go back and kind of put it within the context of the larger business to see how much it can move the needle for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the difference between Fitbit, which is entirely driven by device sales, I mean, it's like 90 something percent of their revenue. And then you compare it to Microsoft, where if Xbox went away tomorrow, it would be like two lines in a press conference in terms of, you know, its relevance to their overall health as a company. Yeah, you don't want to get carried away by the sales trends. And, you know, Xbox and Fitbit, these are forward-facing products. They're a lot sexier than, you know, cloud computing services, but cloud computing services has very low cost and very high margin. So, you know, when you're looking at Microsoft, that's probably where you need to look or subscription revenue from from Office and things like that. Uh, you know, whereas Fitbit Clearly, they need to sell a lot of Fitbits to stay important. You know, Dan, before we wrap up the show, I realized when we were talking earlier, I never asked you what you wanted for the holidays. <laughs> so, I buy all my own holiday gifts based on the past history of getting gifts. And I guess, yes, my, my wife probably won't be listening either. <laughs> um, I bought myself, as you know, the, uh, the Star Wars Jedi lightsaber from Lenovo. That was pretty cool. Uh, which I, I did for a story. Um, I also bought uh, not uh, not a, a one pot, the one the one that they're selling everywhere, but I bought like an eight in one cooking device that slow cooks and pressure cooks, and it makes risotto. And I'm I'm pretty sure it can do my taxes. <laughs> um, and there will probably be a few other tech gadgets. Is there anything tech coming up in your world for the holidays? Um, I think I'm holding off for now because I, I am anchored to the phone that I currently have uh, as part of the agreement when I switched carriers. So I need to hang out with that for a little while. Otherwise, I probably would have tried to take advantage of some iPhone 10 deals. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, no. I, I, I bought a 10, but of course, I justified it by the fact that you know sometimes I do this, and if I didn't have a 10, how could I possibly talk about it on the air? That's the beauty of the work we do, Dan. We get to talk about fun gadget stuff, and we get to justify buying it <laughs> based on that. <laughs> Oh, if you could only see my house. <laughs> uh, great. Dan, anything else before I let you go? Uh, have a happy holidays. Uh, Austin, you too. Yeah, hopefully we'll talk again before that. But if we don't, happy holidays. <laughs> I'll actually see you next week. <laughs> Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Specifically related to this show, I'd love to know what consumer tech devices are on your holiday wish list or which ones you're seeing a lot of people buying. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out The Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Shout out to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Dan Klein, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Nice.